0: Jojo shin yo An unsurpassed, penetrating, and perfect dharma is rarely met with, even in a hundred thousand million kalpas having it to see and listen to, to remember and accept I vow to taste the truth of the Tathagata's words Well, good evening everybody. How are you? Well, I hope. I'm going to uh, introduce myself. Someone said uh, that it would be a good thing to do. So, um, my name is Norman Fisher. I live nearby in Muir Beach. How's the sound? Good?
1: Too
0: Too loud. How's that? Good. Good, good. Okay. Uh, I, uh, for many years, uh, practice, have practiced with the Zen Center, San Francisco, Zen Center, Green Gulch, and Tassajara, and I was Abbot of the Zen Center uh, until 2000, February of 2000, when I retired as Abbot of Zen Center, and now I uh, am teaching through a very small organization called Everyday Zen Foundation. And I left some literature out there, you can look and see what I'm doing. Also, uh, writing uh, prose books and lots of poetry, and generally loafing and enjoying life. So I feel uh, very uh, honored and happy to be here tonight. I've spoken here once or twice before and always enjoyed it. But I always feel like when I come here I I should give a Zen kind of talk uh, because, uh, for variety, you know, because you don't usually get Zen talks here, so. Tonight, uh, I wanted to talk about my favorite subject, uh, emptiness. I thought it would be interesting to talk about emptiness. A few months ago, uh, I attended His Holiness Dalai Lama's teachings in uh, Mountain View, maybe some of you did as well, <clears throat> and he spoke there on the Heart Sutra. And the Heart Sutra is a brief uh, Buddhist text that is a kind of shorthand synopsis of all the teachings on emptiness. So, inspired by his teachings, which were really wonderful, I, uh, I want to take up that subject this evening. Actually, a few uh, months ago somebody was writing, uh, somebody sent me a message, they were writing a textbook on Buddhism, a college textbook, and they had the idea <coughs> that instead of um, just writing a regular textbook, they would include in the textbook um, short essays by practitioners of the different aspects of Buddhism, different traditions of Buddhism. and so. Uh, He wondered whether I would write a brief essay on emptiness. (coughs) Maybe a few hundred words or something like that. So I thought that was fun. So I did that. I did. And I'll, I'll begin my talk by reading you this short essay on emptiness that I wrote for a textbook. From the first time I encountered the word in English, emptiness. I liked the sound of it. Others may find it chillingly abstract, even scary. For me, it was a fresh breath of freedom. I chanted the Heart Sutra, uh, which says, Form is emptiness. Emptiness is form. Every day, for years, before I ever studied what it meant. I remember once, at the beginning of my practice, walking up and down in a blizzard. Snow piled up two feet high, and drifting, chanting that wonderful text over and over again in the driving snow. Only much later did I plunge into the vast philosophical edifice of Mahayana Buddhism from the Diamond Sutra and Nagarjuna on that adumbrates this saving and elusive teaching. The logic of emptiness is airtight. Since we know that we are We know that things affect one another. Unless they do, there is no world appearing, there is no us. But if they do, if things affect one another, they must somehow impinge on one another. They must somehow touch one another. And if they do, then they must have parts. Because if they don't have parts to touch each other, then they would melt into each other and disappear. And if there's parts, there's an infinite proliferation of parts, because every part has its own parts. More and more parts, endlessly clouds of parts. So, the emptiness teaching says, if you look closely enough at anything at all, it disappears into a cloud, and the cloud disappears into a cloud, and so on all is void. The only thing real is connection. A (coughs) void touching void. Uh, That's a summary of thousands of pages of (laughs) emptiness philosophy. So I have always delighted in this simple but profound teaching. But it is the taste of emptiness in the body spirit, and emotions that has meant the most to me. Knowing that what happens is just what happens. My body, my thoughts, my emotions, my desires and hopes, this is the stuff that makes up my life, but it can't ever be desperate because I know it's a cloud. That cloud is all that I am. It is my freedom to soar, my connection to everything. I can float in it and watch it form and reform in the endless sky. This doesn't mean I'm disconnected from life, quite the contrary. I know that there is no way not to be connected, no person or place or thing that is beyond my concern. When I practice meditation, I rest in emptiness, my breath goes in and out, a breath I share with all who have lived and all who will live, the great rhythm that began this world of physical reality and that will never cease, even when the earth is gone. It's nice in the pre-dawn hours to sit sharing that widely, knowing that this zero point underlies all my walking and talking and eating and thinking all the day through. Is it? They say that wisdom, which is the faculty that cognizes emptiness, they say that wisdom and compassion are like the wings of a great bird, holding both in balance against the wafting winds allows you to float enjoying the day. Really though, the two wings are one wing. Where you can appreciate the flavor of emptiness on the tongue, you know immediately that love is the only way and that everything is love and nothing but love. What a pleasant thing to hold in mind. All problems, all joys, all living, all dying, it's love. So that's my little essay on emptiness. So, uh, His Holiness uh, held forth for three full days on the subject of emptiness. Uh, teachings in the morning and in the afternoon. And I want to just uh, tonight speak about one small part of what he mentioned teaching that he called the Four Seals of Buddhism. And this is a really good way, I think, to study emptiness because uh, the Four Seals that he spoke about uh, really encompass the, emp- the, the, the uh, essence of Buddhism in all the traditions. So the, three, uh, the Four Seals, some of you maybe are familiar with the Three Marks, the four seals, it turns out, are the just the three marks plus nirvana, making four. Impermanence is the first one. Suffering is the second one. Uh, no self or, or emptiness, in this case, is the third one. And the fourth one is nirvana, the four seals of Buddhism. So I want to say a little bit about each one. First of all, uh, impermanence. As he quoted from a text, all composite things are impermanent. So we don't need to be Buddhists to to be convinced of this. Everybody knows that uh, things come and go and that there's incessant change in this world. You don't even have to do spiritual practice to notice that. But there's two problems uh, with this. First of all, even though we know that things are impermanent, we don't really understand thoroughly and think through for ourselves in our lives the actual implications of impermanence. That's the first problem. We know things are impermanent, but we really haven't grasped all the implications of this. And secondly... Even if we have grasped the implications of impermanence, we don't live that way. We don't live based on impermanence and the implications of impermanence. We actually live as though the world were not impermanent, as though we ourselves were somehow eternal, even though we know better. Actually, we live live as though we, we were eternal. So... This is actually a fairly big problem. <laughs> you know, to be living in a world that is not the world that we're actually living in. This creates many complications, many problems. We're we're actually making up a world. And then we're frustrated because the world that we've made up is not cooperating with our designs. And we're wondering what's the matter? Why isn't it working? So, first of all, we have to ask ourselves, how exactly are things impermanent? Well, when you think about it, it's not that things are there, and then later on they're not there, although that's how we think of it. That really isn't how it is. The truth is that things are constantly in a state of disappearing. They don't abide and then disappear later. They're constantly disappearing, gradually disappearing. It's not that there's one cause that makes things appear, and then later on another cause comes and makes them disappear. There's just one cause. In other words... That things are at all is the reason that they are not. I remember uh, once in a class, a professor of Buddhism would say to the class, you know how some professors have their shticks? you know, every year they do, and he would say, uh, "What is the, according to Buddhism, what is the cause of death? And people would raise their hands and say all kinds of things. And the answer was, that according to Buddhism, the cause of death is birth. (laughs) Which is really true. All other causes of death are quite incidental. The basic cause of death is birth. Where there's birth, definitely there's death. Somehow or other, some detail will come into the system to cause death. But basically, the real cause of death is birth. That things are is the cause for their not-being. So if you follow this truly, you come to the conclusion that as soon as things come to be, at that same moment, they cease to be. That on every moment, there is cessation. And we call this time. So we don't recognize this fundamental fact of being and we like it when things that we like are there and we don't like it when things that we like are not there anymore. So we like to persist in the idea that they're going to be there, maybe later, sometime they won't be, but they're definitely there now. But it's not really so, it's not really so. Gain and loss, success and failure, birth and death, good and bad, all oppositions are both always existing at the same time. What this means, really, is that all we strive for, all we possess, and all we are, we can never and we will never have because it's ceasing all the time just as surely as it's arriving no wonder we feel insecure so this is uh, the first seal of Buddhism uh, the seal of impermanence now the second seal of Buddhism is called the seal of suffering all contaminative phenomena are suffering. That was the quotation from the text His Holiness gave. All contaminative phenomena are suffering. And here again, this is no brilliant insight. Everybody knows that there is suffering, pain, physical pain, mental and emotional pain. We all also realize that there's no way that you can live avoiding pain entirely. We hope that with the right drugs and a good healthy diet and so forth, we can avoid, you know, in good mental health, to see a therapist and all this, we can, we can avoid uh, quite a lot of pain, most of the time, we hope. But, you know, anybody who's realistic about life knows that no matter how good your therapist is and <laughs> how well-adjusted your medications uh, <laughs> You can't really avoid uh, all pain entirely. It's pretty inescapable that there will be some pain. Now, I think one of the really unfortunate things is that no one tells this to children. So, we all grew up in a kind of fairy tale world. In, In the fairy tale world that we all grew up in, quite naturally, there was pain and suffering. There's plenty of pain and suffering in the child's life. But according to the fairy tale, the suffering was fundamentally optional and would be overcome by the hero of the story. So in the child's story, there's definitely a big bad wolf, and it's pretty scary, but in the end of the story, the good woodcutter will come and roust out the big bad wolf. So that's how we grow up, all of us feeling, thinking about life. Later on, when we find out, which we always do, one way or another, that in fact the big bad wolf usually wins, <laughs> it's more than disappointing. I think uh, there's a feeling of being betrayed. I think we, we grow up, uh, often it's quite unconscious, but I think we grow up feeling betrayed. If someone betrays us, maybe then it's clear. But even if no one does in our lives as as children, we feel in some way betrayed by the world itself. And I think this is the common human experience, feeling betrayed by reality. Sometimes I go back and forth. You know, sometimes I think, you know, we're, we're all too obsessed with our pain and our suffering. We overdo it, you know, we're always complaining about it. Maybe it's just the Buddhists who do
1: this.
0: (laughs) Talking about suffering all the time, suffering, suffering. Or maybe only the Jewish people do it, I don't know. (laughs) And the Catholics, they do it too, yeah. So sometimes I think that, you know, why don't we just get off of it and stop talking about suffering so much. But then other times I think, no, maybe it's the, it's the opposite. You know, we might complain, this and that, but really we're not paying enough attention to our pain, our real pain. We think about the big pains of our lives, our relationships and our money problems and so forth, but maybe we don't pay enough attention to the moment-by-moment pain that goes on. And there's a lot of moment-by-moment frustration and suffering that we go through in, in the course of any day. And sometimes when I see someone you know, driving a car or standing in the line in the bank and I look at their face and see their body language, I really wonder sometimes uh, how much difference is there between that person and the obvious suffering that they're feeling, although they might not call it that at the time, and someone who you know has got some big suffering Deprived in some way, not having enough to eat or having their house burned down or something. Sometimes I wonder whether a deprived person is happier than a lot of us living in such uh, good circumstances but sometimes having miserable mental states because we're frustrated with reality not cooperating with us. Maybe if we paid more attention on a moment-by-moment basis to our pain, and suffering, we'd notice that even though we might think we're happy and we say we're happy, we aren't actually so happy. And I know people who say they're happy and they think they're happy. But you look at them and you know they're not. So there's suffering. We all know about suffering. But the suffering... Uh, that's meant here, includes that kind of suffering, but more than that. It means not only the obvious pain and distress, frustration, anger, yearning, deprivation, obsession, and so forth, but also the pain that comes into our lives on a deeper level because of the first thing. I was talking about the first seal, the seal of impermanence. In other words, there's an underlying pain in our lives, the pain of impermanence, the pain of change. (laughs) Because things are really ceasing all the time, and we can't stop that, we ourselves are ceasing all the time, moment by moment, and we can't stop it. There's a kind of fear or anxiety, I think, in the human heart. Usually we're not conscious of this, I think, but it exists in us as an underlying sensation. We all, I think, when we hear about it, can shake our heads in the affirmative to this underlying dread of our lives. (coughs) The fact that every moment time slips away from us. The fact of our eventual absolute disappearance, which really is not just later on, but is moment by moment a fact of our living. So this anxiety about impermanence is another kind of suffering that we experience. Then there's a third kind of suffering. It's the suffering of things being conditioned. That's the nature of what is. That's the nature of this world, that it is a conditioned world, a contingent world. In other words, in the world that we live in, at every moment, everything is at the mercy of everything else. Nothing is free from conditioning. And so, at any moment, without any warning, there could be a change in conditions that might very well produce something that we don't want to happen. Somewhere in a sutra, His Holiness quoted this in his talk, it says, the whole world is created by mind. The whole world is created by mind. Now this doesn't mean what it sounds like it means. It doesn't mean that things are only mental and not really existing. It means that in the conditioning of the world, the mind is the primary and most salient conditioning factor. Even matter, according to the Buddha Sutras, even matter is ultimately created by mind. For example, uh, if you were to literally, physically, scientifically analyze the particles that make up your own body, you could actually show that these particles did not come to be when you were born, they were already in the universe. The particles that make up your body actually have literally and, and scientifically and truly been around since the time of the Big Bang. The same particles have been reorganizing themselves into different forms of being since that time. Well, what about before then? (laughs) Well, the Buddhists would say, before the Big Bang, there was mind only. Which we might as well say because, by definition, Before the Big Bang, there was no matter. That's the beginning. So what was before then? If you would like, you could say, God. That would be good too. So mind produces this world and everything in it. If mind, and we share in mind, you see. Mind is not some mind elsewhere. We also, mind flows through us. and we have some capacity to work with mind. If mind is undisciplined and confused, then mind will produce big messes. If mind is clear and accurate, then there can be some real happiness. So on some level, again, maybe mostly unconscious, we know this is true. And we recognize our ultimate responsibility in the world. That's what makes a human being, you know. A human being is a creature that recognizes his or her ultimate responsibility in the world. And this is also a cause of our suffering, because we know we're not taking care of mind. We're not working with our mind. So there's dread and fear in recognizing our responsibility, our awesome responsibility uh, in this lifetime. All that's about suffering, the second of the four seals. And the third uh, is the main topic, uh, non-self or emptiness. And the phrase uh, that His Holiness quoted is, all phenomena are empty and devoid of self-existence. All phenomena are empty and devoid of self-existence. So this is really, now brings us to emptiness. Dependent on the other two seals, we see that all things are empty, without any intrinsic, substantial existence. Things don't exist the way we think they do, the way our perceptions, our sense organs project them to exist, as freestanding and independent entities, as if they were solidly there. This is true of everything outside of us. It's also true of we ourselves. Everything is contingent. Nothing is solid. Everything is ceasing the moment it arises, moment after moment. Things are like space. Of course, we don't know this because our perceptual apparatus doesn't project a world like this for us. And according to Buddhism, we are ignorant of the one thing that we should not be ignorant of, the actual nature of ourselves and of the world we're living in. So, The term ignorance in Buddhism, avidya, unfortunately doesn't mean not knowing something. It would be better if it meant not knowing something. It means actually that we know something very firmly. Unfortunately, we're wrong about it. (laughs) We know for sure that this world is as we think it is. And we're absolutely wrong about that. And because of being wrong about it, we're, we're really making trouble, you know, right and left for ourselves and all around us. So the better translation, maybe than ignorance, is misknowledge, wrong knowledge. And to do spiritual practice, not only meditation practice or Buddhist practice, but I think any kind of spiritual practice is a process of coming to see for ourselves and to experience uh, on a daily basis to be able to accept and live with the truth about how it really is with us and how it really is uh, with the world. Once we establish our lives on real assumptions, there is a great decrease in the fear and dread and anxiety that I was talking about. I hope I didn't upset you too much, <laughs> talking about all that fear and anxiety and dread, but it's really true, you know. But the good news is that when you, when you establish your life on assumptions that are actually real and realistic, there's a tremendous decrease in this fear and dread and anxiety. And there's a spontaneous arising. Of much more joy and peace, as I said in my little 200-word essay on emptiness, also surprisingly much, much more love. So this brings us to the last of the four seals of Buddhism. Uh, Nirvana is true peace. That's the last seal, Nirvana. Nirvana is true peace. because nirvana means that which is unconditioned. It's true peace, not flimsy we hope so peace. True peace because it doesn't depend on conditions. Nirvana is nirvana, cool and full of ease regardless of conditions, because it understands and sees the unconditioned nature of all conditions. So, There's a huge literature on emptiness. It's fascinating. Thousands and thousands of sutras, uh, pages of sutras and treatises. And the greatest of all uh, Buddhist sages, Nagarjuna, uh, wrote beautifully on emptiness. Uh, He wrote philosophy as profound as anything ever written in the West, except he wrote it in elegant, rhymed Sanskrit poetry, which is not easy to do. So I think he did one better than uh, Plato or Kierkegaard or Kant or anybody. But it's a funny thing, you know. Why would there be thousands of pages of Buddhist metaphysics like that? After all, uh, you all know the famous uh, uh, story, parable, uh, that the Buddha gives somewhere in the early literature, the parable of the uh, man shot with an arrow. The man is shot with an arrow and. You know He's on the point of death lying on the ground and uh, someone rushes up to him to pull the arrow out and save his life and he says, oh, hold on a second, don't, don't pull the arrow out yet I, because I would actually like to know a few things about this arrow before you pull it out. I notice that it has a uh, wooden shaft but I don't know where the wood is from or what exactly what kind of wood it is. And I'm wondering if you could maybe do some research and find out for me before you pull the arrow out. Also, it has feathers on the end, and I can't tell whether these are, you know, hawk feathers or owl feathers or wild turkey feathers from Spirit Rock or what kind of feathers they are. So I'm wondering if you could sort of figure that out, maybe do some DNA testing or something before you pull the arrow out. And also inside of my body lodged about a quarter inch from my heart. I know there's a very sharp tip to this arrow, but is that a stone tip? Is it a metal tip? What kind of tip is it exactly? I'd like to know the answers to these questions, so please go find out for me, and then when you have found out, you know, maybe then I'll feel uh, at ease and you can pull the arrow out. And of course, uh, in the the parable, Buddha says, what a ridiculous person. You know, this is not the point at all. The point is, pull the arrow out. These questions are, are really, you know, not material when there's this kind of dire situation you have to pull the arrow out and the Buddha, his idea was this is what my teaching is like it's pulling the arrow out so I'm not concerned with metaphysics I'm not concerned with the feathers and the shaft and so forth it's unimportant the important thing is to do what it takes for healing so given all that why would there be thousands and thousands and thousands of pages of Buddhist metaphysics on the topic of the empty nature of phenomena. You could fall asleep over and over again reading <laughs> this literature. So how, how did that happen? Well, uh, it turns out that it's a little naive to think that you can just treat the human illness without having an accurate view of the way things really are it turns out that it's necessary to disabuse ourselves of misknowledge since misknowledge is in the end the cause of our suffering we have to correct it by applying real knowledge because misknowledge is the is the cause of all our suffering in buddhism suffering is means Suffering of the mind, suffering of the heart and the emotions. Suffering that comes from the way we understand things. Physical suffering is not something that can be eliminated. If there's causes of illness in the body, there's going to be pain in the body, and we can't eliminate that. Even the Buddha suffered pain when he was sick. But most of our suffering isn't coming from that kind of cause. Even most of our seemingly physical suffering is caused by mind, emotional suffering. I was with a friend today who's got lots of physical pain, and he was saying to me, You know, it's not the pain that's the problem, it's my mind. You know, on a bad day, it's because I'm raging against the pain, and I'm disappointed, and I'm afraid, and, I, and I'm worried about the future. If I just only had the pain, it would be much easier. It's not the pain. Today I feel great. I have the same pain. But for some reason today I don't have the worry and the fear and the dread and the anger and the avoidance and all those things that make me suffer so much. Emotional suffering. We have what's called afflictive emotion. Anger, fear, regret, greed, violence, hatred, so on. And when we exercise these emotions, No matter how justified we may be in doing so, we make stronger suffering in ourselves. And then, being kind people as we are, we tend to spread that suffering around to people next to us and far away. But what's the root of the afflictive emotions? How do they arise in the first place? They arise from clinging clinging to ourselves, clinging to our opinions, (coughs) clinging to everything that we identify with, other people and things, all of which we assume intrinsically exist. And so afflictive emotions arise like fire based on our unexamined and unconscious conviction that all these things are fundamentally there. But they're not. Because things really and truly are empty of intrinsic existence, we find this out for ourselves, on our cushions, observing our breath, observing our thoughts, our feelings, observing sensations of the body, we find that out. And when we know it, Through and through, the afflictive emotions are much less compelling and eventually seldom arise. Instead, there's more peace, there's love, like I said before. There is just no more an immediate sense of fearing or hating or desiring that which is not intrinsically existing in the way we think it does. Anyway, What would be the point of grasping for air? Now that things are empty in the way that I'm speaking of them doesn't mean that they're unreal somehow, or that they somehow don't exist. They do exist. We can trust our common sense. Something is going on here. We're not in outer space. I mean, we are in outer space, but we're on the earth in outer space. And we live in, we live in this world, on this planet, in this place. Things are definitely there. Something is definitely going on. We go to the movies and we enjoy ourselves and we understand the story, but we understand also when we walk out of the movies that our lives are something different from the movies. I hope so, anyway. So the teachings on emptiness are not trying to tell us that things don't exist or that things are somehow unreal. They're just telling us that things exist in a mode other than the one in which we think they exist. They're empty of intrinsic existence and they're full of empty existence, space-like existence, unfindable existence, unlimited existence. You and I are fundamentally unfindable and unlimited. But it's not that emptiness is something other than all of this that we see. Some other thing in some other location. The Heart Sutra says, uh, form is emptiness, but then when it asks the question, what is emptiness? It says, emptiness is nothing other than form itself. So neither form nor emptiness are anything intrinsic. They are fundamentally as now I think the brain science is catching up to all this, things are fundamentally designations. The world that we live in is fundamentally designations dependent on our body, mind, and thinking. In Zen, we're fond of talking about not knowing, the mind of not knowing, the mind that's always open, receptive, and doesn't grasp at knowing something. That's the mind that knows that things are all empty. That things are all fundamentally unlimited and unknowable. Which means that things are fundamentally marvelous. Connected. Like magic. To see things in this way is to wake up from the dream of intrinsic reality, a dream in which various solid and menacing separate independent monsters are constantly out to get us. Paranoia is the basic human condition, I think. And to wake up to the connectedness of things and the indescribable meaning that is our real life. The Emptiness Sutras go on and on about this, how fantastic all this is, and the the omniscience of the Buddhas and the Enlightenment and all this stuff. If you read these sutras, you'll be staggered at the unbelievable uh, idealism and and, and extravagance of these texts. So there's some benefit, I think, in an extreme idealism when it comes to religious practice. It's a very encouraging. It makes you, you, you make, enthusiastic, maybe, and gives you faith. After all, sticking to the so-called real world, I'm always amused when people talk about the real world, you know. Sticking like glue to the so-called real world, to our being mired in identity, in all our emotional and physical problems, this is no picnic either. To me, this is a kind of narrow-mindedness, it's a kind of naive, metaphysical assumption that we could dispense with, I think, and we'd be better off. On the other hand, to take literally all of this stuff about omniscience and enlightenment and all these Buddhas flying in the sky, <laughs> this may be going a bit too far anyway, especially if it causes us to be frustrated about our own progress in our practice or to think that somebody else is an enlightened Buddha and we're not. So practically speaking, you know, what good is all this emptiness? <laughs> Philosophy and practice. And I speak practically because uh, I believe that religious practice is the most practical thing that there is when you really get down to it. Religious practice is the most practical thing that there is. So there's a progression, a very doable progression in our appreciation and understanding of these emptiness teachings that I'm speaking about. First of all, we begin with some very modest, everyday experience. This is what's good I think about meditation practice. it's a very modest everyday experience. you sit down you try to pay attention to sitting and breathing very simple maybe you do it for time, the first time maybe some of you here are meditate have meditated tonight for the first time and and you know what something always happens when you sit and meditate. Maybe you don't know what it is that happens, maybe you, it's barely noticeable, but something does happen. And you see, I think, that sitting is something real, something powerful. I, I, these days, you know, i liberated from the Zen Center, I travel around here and there talking about meditation, And I go, you know, I might like go in a hospital, you know, and uh, once I did, grand rounds at the hospital in San Francisco and the doctors all show up, you know, looking at their watches and so on. And I just say, stop and breathe and pay attention. And in a few minutes, something always happens. So there's some experience just to be breathing and being present. What does it amount to? Well, I think it amounts to that we have a glimmering, just a glimmering, that the world that we have always assumed to be the world, the only world, the whole world, and nothing but the world, may not be exactly as it seems. I think you get a sense of that when you stop, even for a short while, and meditate. The mind the self, the thinking, just might not be what we always assumed it was. So, our appreciation of these emptiness teachings begins with something that simple, that common. Not because sitting is some magical thing that happens, but because, just to take the time to take a look at just what is there, Since the mind really is empty, and since things really are empty, if we take a look, we're going to get a sense of that. Even a little chance will give you a feeling for it. So that's how it begins. Then, maybe you sit a little bit more, and you experience this repeatedly. Maybe you start to sit retreats, and you experience it with more power and more certainty. Then you hear, teachings and you reflect on those teachings and little by little you become more and more convinced, it just becomes clear to you that gee that really is the way it is and I really can see how my mind is creating a fixed world that's causing suffering it becomes clear then you start noticing how come I'm still doing all this stupid stuff (laughs) Why am I still, okay, I see that. How come I'm still having all this afflictive emotion? How come I have all this anger and hatred and so forth? You begin to notice that and you begin to see that it's foolish and unnecessary. And all your justifications for it and all your thinking that that's the way it should be, you begin to really let go of that. And you begin to see that it's possible to train yourself in emptiness, to train yourself in letting go of the afflictive emotions and seeing that they're like smoke. And then you do that, and little by little you can reduce these afflictive emotions and then you go back to your cushion and you sit some more and the feeling of the sitting goes into your life some more. And pretty soon, whether you call it emptiness or not, these things that I've been speaking about do become very practically, very immediately, very clearly so for you, and you see that things really are empty, like smoke, like mist, like space, like the blue sky, non-different from you yourself. Wouldn't that be a nice way to live in the world? And it really is possible. So, anyway, I went on a little longer than I planned, but that's my uh, uh, words tonight about emptiness. And I hope that uh, you don't need to call it emptiness. You know, it doesn't matter what you call it. Obviously, emptiness is just a word after all. Empty of any intrinsic reality, isn't it? It's only a word. It's not. It's not some idea of emptiness that's important. What's important is a light feeling in your living, a kind feeling, a warm feeling, a feeling of identity, not just with your body and what surrounds you and your friends, but with everything, the sky, the trees, everyone you meet. When you feel that, then much of what disturbs you in your life melts away. So, uh, I unfortunately didn't leave too much time for question and discussion but let's let's have whatever we can do in the next 10 or 15 minutes if anybody has something please uh, raise your hand or wave it madly so that I can see you if you're in the back yes
1: um, going back to the meditation at the beginning um, you spoke about stillness and about intention and uh, well, I'm familiar with both of those in practice You also spoke about intensity in meditation and I'm wondering if you could just say a few words about intensity as it relates to meditation.
0: Mm -hmm. He said that, uh, he's referring to things that I said during this meditation period at the beginning. Stillness and intention, he said I mentioned and both those he was familiar with but I also mentioned intensity and he said that he wanted me to speak more about that. Well, I suppose this is a kind of Zen thing. Uh, Zen sitting uh, is a very intense form of meditation practice. A very powerful emphasis on, you know, really making effort and uh, being alert in the present moment with some intensity. And it's partly has to do with what I all that I've said about emptiness, because uh, there's we're making the effort in, in Zen sitting to sit with. The intensity uh, that will enable us to uh, see the empty nature of phenomena. But um, certainly, uh, sitting with intensity and sitting with a relaxed feeling are not contradictory. So it's not as if we're making ourselves crazy. Although there are approaches to Zen where you know people are really <laughs> whipping themselves up into a frenzy, you know, you know, trying to be so intense that they go a little nuts, you know, and hitting them with sticks and so forth. It's very traditional. It's kind of fun, actually. But <laughs> but, uh, but. I think uh, better off uh, without all that. Some uh, feeling of being intensely present and intensely alive and at the same time uh, relaxed and calm. I think that's what we're looking, looking for. So... I guess I'm, I say that to kind of counteract the tendency that we may have to think of meditation as a kind of sort of a species of nap, <laughs> you know, like a little restful uh, interlude, a little peaceful uh, time of maybe dreamlike uh, you know, slumber. But no, I don't think meditation is... I think meditation practice is relaxing, actually, but in a more fundamental way than just sort of taking a snooze. A snooze often is not relaxing, you know, when we have huge problems like being a human being, you know. (laughs) Just snoozing our way through life is not going to do the trick, I think. So it's necessary to clarify you know, what it is to be a human being, and I think to, so to have some alertness and intensity in meditation practice uh, does does help. Is that clear? Yeah. yeah. Okay, yes.
1: Well, I just love hearing about the nirvana state of getting into that place, and when I come to meditation, I always leave with that yeah. goal in mind, Yeah. and then I get into life.
0: Yeah.
1: And the intensity of life and meeting the responsibilities of the human being in so many situations. And being full of love, which also means concern and caring and noticing how little of it is allotted human beings in this world, in this community. And paying attention to that and wanting to do something about that and being a responsible human being brings me to the opposite place of the monoplasm. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And I I don't know how to, you know, I, I, I think my approach is different since I've been in a Buddhist practice for 25, 30 years. But I'm still living in that...
0: Intense
1: world. I I find it very difficult unless I would give it up and go into the forest as the Buddha did Mm -hmm. and give up my children and my wife as he did with my husband. Mm -hmm. I could probably accomplish it, Mm -hmm. no doubt, but I'm not doing that. Mm -hmm. I am living in this world and taking the responsibilities of. Trying to make it a
0: better world, Mm -hmm. and that's a very intense, horrendous place to be. Yes. So she's uh, basically pointing to what she thinks uh, feels uh, in her practice is the contradiction between nirvana, which is peaceful and um, cool and unattached, and the and the intensity of plunging into the world with concern and love to help people and you know be involved. And these seem like quite opposites and uh, a sort of difficult situation to put those two together. Well, uh, to make a long story short, uh, in the earliest teachings of the Buddha, it certainly looks like that. It certainly looks like there's a choice between, as as it says in some of the sutras, the dusty world and uh, the world of purity, the world of nirvana, the world of pure practice. But exactly uh, with these emptiness teachings, the whole thing is turned upside down. Because uh, nirvana is empty also, just like the world. So there is, actually, when we really understand the emptiness of phenomena in the way that I was speaking of it, um, that which we are concerned about is empty. Our concern itself is empty. Mm-hmm. Suffering is empty. So because of that, uh, we can plunge into the world with you know lots of concern and lots of love and sustain the doing of that. Now, of course, this is an ideal. You know, realistically, it's difficult, just as you say. But, I'm sure that uh, our practice makes this possible. And I think you know, we, need to cultivate, uh, we need to cultivate the understanding that meditation practice and non-meditation practice are not opposites and contradictions. There's only meditation. There's only different forms of paying attention and being alive to our life. Whether we're sitting on the cushion or getting off the cushion. One of my sayings is, there's two parts to Zen practice, sitting down and getting up. It's not about sitting down. It's actually about getting up. But in order to get up and plunge into the world as it really is, we have to sit down. Because that's the only way that we really understand what the world is. But if we only sit down, it's, we're, we're not understanding what the world is. We have to sit down we have to get up. And we have to begin to cultivate the understanding that getting up is sitting down. And sitting down is getting up, so we have to really work on this. And it's a long haul, but it really does—it really is possible. It means we really have to be serious and disciplined in our practice, and it means that we cannot avoid the difficulties of the world, the difficulties of love and commitment, and as you used the word responsibility. That's one of the things I was saying tonight: is that we recognize we are very, we are ultimately responsible human beings. Recognize this, and we have to follow up on it. And the only way that we can is to recognize the real nature of things. And then we can plunge in. So it's, it's an ongoing concern, but I think one thing is to see that it's not, that this seeming contradiction is, really isn't a contradiction. And, and that's very important to kind of get that straight in our minds and then cultivate that understanding. Hmm. Thank you for that question. Yeah, It's an important question for all of us. Maybe one more and then we'll be finished. If there is one more. Yes.
1: What techniques can one use to remain intense and avoid sliding into torpor and sloth during meditation?
0: hmm What techniques can you use to stay intense and not get uh, into torpor sl- and toth, or <laughs> otherwise known as sloth and torpor, yeah, in meditation? Well, uh, there are many techniques, and there are times when none of them work. <laughs> uh, so if I, if I rattle off a bunch of techniques, don't think that these will necessarily solve the problem. There are times when uh, the dimness of the mind is so compelling that nothing will help. <laughs> but uh, one thing is to, you know, however bright the room is, there's always some light in the room. Focus the mind on the light and... Try to make the light more bright. That's one thing you can do. Um, Also, um, you can uh, meditate on a phrase. You know, you can do metta meditation or some meditation that has more of a discursive uh, element to it because just following the breath may tend to make you more sleepy. So bring something up like that. It also may be good to recognize, uh, to meditate on uh, impermanence and death, to recognize that life is very brief and why would you want to waste time meditating? Wake up and meditate. Don't sleep and meditate. Because really and truly, each period of meditation is precious and should be considered to be the last one of your life. So with that spirit, maybe you wake up a little bit. You can also uh, get up you know, and splash cold water on your face and take a, go outside and take a few deep breaths of air and come in and sit down again. Also, uh, Zen masters of old used to do things like sit on the edge of a cliff. <laughs> That's a good one. You know, the, the, the higher the cliff, the better. That kind of gives you the spirit of, you know, like, I'm not going to fall asleep. It's better not fall asleep. So, uh, but if you don't have a cliff nearby, uh, then one thing you could do is stand up. Meditate, stand up. So that you, you know, because then you can't fall asleep and fall over. And if nothing, none of those things work, then, you know, like, um, stop meditating and do something else and come back to it, walk up and down, something like that. Take a nap, yeah, maybe you're tired, take a nap. (laughs) Well, I really appreciate your uh, kind attention. It's always nice to come to Spirit Rock. I really appreciate uh, the practice here and... I sneak away whenever I can and sneak in the retreats and talks. And I, For some reason, I have the good fortune of being uh, buddies with most of the Spirit Rock teachers over the years of practicing together. So I feel somehow, uh, even though I'm from another oddball tradition, uh, strangely connected and part of the family. So thank you very much. Take care. I don't know, are there more announcements or something or is that are we finished? (coughs) No.